You're listening to TIP. Oil and gas companies are extremely cheap right now. Generally speaking, commodity producers in general are very cheap right now. Historically, oil and gas companies, metal and mining companies, kind of they've traded at about a 20% discount in aggregate relative to the broad equity market going back to the 1920s. Just to give you a sense for how cheap these companies are right now, that discount is more like 55, 60% discount relative to the broad equity market. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lucas White, who's the portfolio manager at GMO for the Resources and Climate Change Strategies and a partner of the firm. During this episode, I get Lucas's outlook for the energy sector going forward. He explains why energy is still very cheap and undervalued at today's prices, what the main drivers of performance will be for the sector over the long term, along with his views on the move towards clean energy, what this will do to the industry, his thoughts on coal companies transitioning to clean energy, and what companies he thinks offer better opportunities in the space. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Lucas. He cleared up a lot of questions I had on the energy sector heading into 2023, and he points out some really interesting trends that I think we should all be aware of as investors, and he shares what he thinks are the best ways that we can capitalize on these opportunities going forward. So without further ado, please enjoy today's episode with Lucas White. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I am joined by Lucas White. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Today, we're going to be talking all about the commodity sector and particularly energy because this has been of interest to investors. It's been the highest performing sector over the past year. I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on how energy might perform in 2023, particularly as we're thinking about the risks of recessions and what that could do to earnings downgrades and companies' profitability. I guess the negative side of things would be that there could be a global recession uh, that would obviously impact the demand side for oil and gas and, and everything else to a substantive degree. On the other hand, the supply side uh, can be constrained at times as well. And we've, we've seen that this year with Russia invading Ukraine. And obviously, Russia is, is a huge producer of oil and, and natural gas for the world. It's very difficult, unfortunately, more or less impossible to predict what's going to happen with commodity prices. What you can do is you can look at the valuation of the companies and oil and gas companies are extremely cheap right now. Generally speaking, commodity producers in general are very cheap right now. Historically, oil and gas companies, metal and mining companies kind of they've traded at about a 20 percent discount in aggregate relative to the broad equity market going back to the 1920s. Just to give you a sense for how cheap these companies are right now, that discount is more like 55, 60% discount relative to the broad equity market. It's hard to know what's going to have commodity prices next year. Commodity prices are going to have a big impact on how these companies are valued or rewarded by the market. But the companies are very cheap and I suspect will deliver pretty reasonable, if not uh, very exciting returns over the medium term. 
Okay, I was going to ask you that if you think the energy sector is still cheap because it was the best performing sector. It had massive gains over the last year. And I was wondering at current valuations with the unknowns of recessionary risks and the potential downgrade for demand if we enter a recession, if that would kind of hurt the outlook or put the energy sector maybe in an overvalued territory because I know looking relative to its own history, the multiples are a bit higher now compared to its own history. And then you were comparing it to, was that the total market then? Uh, yeah, I was comparing it to the, the broad equity market, the S&P 500. Just to give you a sense, once again, historically, commodity producers, uh, once again, oil and gas companies, metals and mining companies have traded at about a 20% discount to the market. Right now, that's more like 55, 60%. But if you were to go back two, three years ago, we saw that discount hit about 80%. 80% discount to the broad equity market is probably unprecedented. There's probably never been a significant sector of the market traded at an 80% discount to the broad market, yet we knew with more or less absolute certainty it would exist in something approximating its current shape and form 10 years into the future. It's just unheard of, right? And so that strong performance that you're referencing over the last couple of years, that strong performance from an extremely low base. Another way of thinking about it is if a stock drops 90% and then it rallies 200%, yeah, it's gone up 200%, but it's still down 70% from where it started. These stocks had dropped especially relative to the broad equity market by a dramatic amount. And yes, they've outperformed, but they're nowhere near kind of the valuations that we've we've seen historically. They're still extraordinarily cheap along a number of dimensions. And if you thought, once again, I don't believe that anybody can predict commodity prices, but if you thought commodity prices were going to stay flat, not even go up from here, if you thought oil prices, iron ore prices, copper prices, et cetera, were going to stay flat from here for the next 10 years, resource companies would deliver a very, very strong return in that kind of a world. Is that something that you really look for in your companies, ones with the lowest break evens? Because every operator obviously has different break even points, but many are well below the prices we're seeing today. So even if we saw significant decreases down to 60 or 50, many would still do very well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can find companies. We, we typically model some right now in, in the oil space, something around $70 oil, which is just quite frankly, the trailing average five year price for oil. What the, we don't think we can predict oil prices, but you need an input to put into your financial model. What are you going to use? You have to use something trailing average price around $70. So if oil's bouncing around, I mean, it's been up to 120, but if it's bouncing around 80, 90, 100, 110, $120 a barrel, well, sure, oil prices could drop substantively and these companies could still deliver, I don't know, something like 10% free cash flow yields, which in this moment in time, I think a lot of people would be excited about 10% returns. If, if oil prices stay at higher levels than that, if they stay, let's say at $90 or $95 or $100 a barrel, now you're talking about 15 to 20%. Uh, free cash flow yields. And generally speaking, we believe that free cash flow yields are what investors are entitled to or what are, they're going to earn over the long term. That's really good to hear your perspective because I know some investors might have thought they missed the boat on this. I guess thinking a bit more long term, are you of the view then that we're in this new long term commodity bull cycle and this is just the beginning of the run in a longer energy boom? It's hard for me to sit here and, and say that I can't predict commodity prices and then give you a strong bullish view on where commodity prices are going to go. But I do think that the dynamics 
in the resources sector are conducive to rising or, or at least very high commodity prices. And so there many commodities are at elevated levels right now. So even if they, once again, if they were just to stay flat from here, coal prices, for example, were $50 a few years ago and, and have been hovering around $400, uh, 300 to $400 in, in the last year or so. Some of the things that it would support high commodity prices. First of all, you have almost three what I call relentless drivers of commodity demand. First of all, the population is growing. We've added about a billion people to the planet in the last 10 years, which is insane. I mean, think about that number. A billion people have been added to the planet over a 10-year period. That is a lot of mouths to feed. It's a lot of housing that you need, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of food and water. It's a lot of natural resources going to supporting a billion incremental people. And we're not stopping there. Uh, So we're at about 8 billion people right now. The UN, which by the way, has historically been very accurate in projecting population growth, the UN projects us to get to about 9.7 billion by 2050. So these are wild numbers and have huge implications for commodity demand. But perhaps more important than that, you have countries like China, India, even Indonesia, parts of Latin America, Africa, who are going through the stage of economic development that is incredibly commodity intensive. You're building out your cities, your infrastructure, your electric grids, etc. You need a lot of copper and iron ore and cement and aluminum and, and all of these things. That is a process that doesn't take five or 10 or 20 years. It takes many decades. Uh, Even for the US, the UK, Japan, other countries that have gone through that stage of development, it takes decades. Well, none of those countries had 1.4, 1.5 billion people the way China and India do. So how long is it going to take those countries to go through that stage of development? It could be a century or more. And who knows what it looks like for a country with a billion and a half people to go through that stage of development. Time will tell. This is an unprecedented experiment. Nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the world. That's the second relentless driver of commodity demand. And then the third one is clean energy. Clean energy is brilliant. Everybody loves it. Guess what? it doesn't mean you're done with natural resources. You're just using a different set of natural resources. So rather than our global economy revolving around coal, natural gas, oil, our economy, our a clean energy economy is going to revolve around copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, platinum group metals, silver. You know, it's just a different set of materials that you need. And if we are serious about getting to a net zero world, there is going to be much more demand for those clean energy materials than anything we've ever seen before. And and there are real questions, quite frankly, about whether where we're going to get it all and more importantly, at what price. If you need that much more copper, that much more lithium, that much more nickel than the world has ever needed before, how much is it going to cost us to extract that and transport it to where it needs to go and be used in, in its end markets? Here are these three drivers of demand that any base, reasonable base case you have is that all three of those are going to play out. Not one of the three, not two of the three. All three of those are going to play out should be your base case, unless you're kind of out of touch. On the supply side, the issue is that we've been underinvesting for years now. So commodity prices, metals prices peaked in 2011, meaning at the end of the, the China-driven commodity super cycle. Oil prices peaked middle of 2014. Commodity prices fell for a number of years. What did the commodity producers do in reaction to that? Well, they slashed CapEx. They slashed it pretty substantively. Then what happens? COVID hits. What do you think the commodity producers do when COVID hits? They slash CapEx again. Now, COVID's not in the rearview mirror. We're learning to live with it, I guess. But now, looking forward, what does the world see? 
we see a global recession. Do you think the commodity producers are going to dramatically ramp up production in the face of, of a recession? It, it seems unlikely. There have been slight upticks in CapEx, but just to put it in perspective, CapEx levels over the last year or two have been at 15-year lows. And by the way, not just lows, like about half the level of where we were about 15 years ago and about a third of, of where we were at the peak of, of the China-driven super cycle. You have these companies investing a fraction of what they used to invest into commodities production to make things a little bit worse uh, than being at a 15-year low or a half you know, of where we were 15 years ago. We use a lot more natural resources now than we used 15 years ago. So when you look at copper, iron ore, coal, well, not coal, uh, but copper, iron ore, natural gas, major commodities, coal we've been trying to get off of, so it hasn't grown as much. But for a lot of these major commodities that drives the world, almost literally, you're talking about about 40% more consumption of these major commodities than we had 15 years ago. So we're investing half as much in commodity production, despite consuming, in many cases, 20, 30, 40% more of these commodities. For lithium, we're consuming much more than that relative to where we were 15 years ago. And on top of all of that, if that isn't a grim enough picture for you, it takes about 10 years. It used to take seven to 10 years for a commodity asset to come online. You've identified the asset, you've done your due diligence, but now you're getting into the point where you're going to develop that asset and try to bring it to production. From when you really get serious about it until production actually starts flowing, you're talking about a seven to 10 year period was what people would historically guide. Well, now that's become more like 10 plus years. Environmental hurdles, permitting issues, everything's become more difficult. And by the way, we're not doing the easy projects anymore. We're doing much more difficult, much more capital intensive projects, which is another thing. We're investing half as much, yet it costs a lot more per unit of production than it cost 15, 20, 30 years ago. The supply side in expectation is going to be challenged. The demand side, it's really hard to have a base case scenario where the demand doesn't increase pretty dramatically for resources across the board. So I know that was a long answer, but while I can't give you kind of what do I think oil prices are going to be or copper prices or nickel prices, I can tell you that the long-term supply demand dynamics would seem to be conducive to prices being high and perhaps rising substantively from here. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. 
What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. That was extremely helpful. All of that detail is exactly what I was after. And I think it's so interesting hearing you speak about those different elements, particularly supply and why even at these really high prices, you would expect producers to just be ramping up, but it's not really the case. And do you have any more color to paint on that? Like how much have producers really ramped up compared to usual or maybe what was expected in this high price environment? They've barely budged off of lows. Big picture. And actually, inflation is high. So that's some of those those increases in CapEx and guidance are kind of in nominal terms. So yeah, we're going to increase. But in real terms, it may turn out that they're just trying to keep up with inflation. And, and of course, there have been inflationary pressures on commodity production side of things. Yeah, what happened is that, or at least part of what happened, I'm not going to claim this is the entire story, but part of what happened is that in the commodity super cycle, once again, these companies did ramp up CapEx pretty dramatically. Commodity prices were high. Companies wanted to capitalize on those high commodity prices and rake in profitability associated with it. So they ramped up production. They put a tremendous amount of CapEx in uh, unprecedented levels of CapEx in the energy and metal space. And it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to get it exactly right, right? And like what's over investment versus under investment versus the exact right level. It's uh, you're, you're talking about threading the needle, right? And how are you going to thread the needle when you have hundreds of participants around the world, a lot of whom are yahoos and, and whatever else? Like you're, you're not going to get that group of people to agree on doing something reasonable, even if it, there was a real number that you were targeting. So there was a tremendous amount of what in retrospect ended up being over investment. And what happened? New supply started eventually. It took a lag, right? Commodity prices, well, I guess they peaked in 2007 and 2011, but oil prices peaked at $150 a barrel in, I guess, uh, the middle of 2008, I believe. So, but it wasn't until 2014 because of that distance, once again, in time space to, to how long it takes projects to come online. You had all this new supply flooding the markets that helped to put downward pressure on commodity prices. And how do you think the investment community reacted to that? The investment community, generally speaking, went to these companies and said, you're a bunch of morons. Uh, You have no idea what you're doing. Just return capital to us. Why would you go out? You always do this. You invest at the peak of the cycle and you divest at the trough of the cycle. You're a bunch of buffoons. Just give us our money. Give us our capital. Pay us dividends. Repurchase shares do all the things that we as equity investors want you to do. What did the company start doing? 
they started paying out dividends. And you look at at this period of time in which they slashed their CapEx while they're slashing CapEx from, let's say, 2014 to, to 2020, they're ramping up their dividends that they're paying out. They're increasing their share repurchase programs. They're returning capital to investors, just like investors demanded. Now, we're expecting these companies to do what? Change stripes all of a sudden? Like they got the message loud and clear. Don't over ingest. Don't invest at the peak of the cycle. Try to be competent professionals. And now they need to be investing, but they're not incentivized to. They've gotten the message loud and clear what their investors want from them. We kind of deserve what we get, I guess, to some extent in the financial services industry if we end up bearing the brunt of, of high commodity prices because we were uh, roundly scolding uh, the management teams of these companies. And by the way, I'll just mention that that entire idea that these companies always invest at the peak of the cycle and divest at the trough of the cycle and that they're incompetent and these management teams don't know what they're doing, it's totally implausible, right? It, it doesn't, it, it is so deeply ingrained. Believe me, I talked to hundreds and hundreds of investors in the resources sector. I talk more or less constantly with people who are looking at these companies. That is a very ingrained meme or belief or, or what have you. But it's just so implausible. Why would the Exxons and Chevrons and BHP Billitons and Rio Tintos of the world get a, a monopoly on incompetent management, right? Like they make billions and billions and billions of dollars. You don't think they're going out and getting super smart people, really talented, bright people who are capable and competent and know what they're doing? Of course they are. It's just, it's very difficult to run a company if you don't know if your product is going to be $150 a barrel or $10 a barrel, or somewhere in between. That is a difficult game to play. I personally, put me in charge of Procter & Gamble, right? I can figure out if a tube of toothpaste should be $3.25 or $3.15. That seems like the kind of uncertainty that's pretty easy to live with. But you're an oil company. What do you do? You don't know what the price of oil is going to be. They don't know any better than anyone else what the price of oil is going to be. They're a little bit more knowledgeable about the volatility, what can persist for a period of time, what's profitable for them. But, but they don't know any better than anyone else what oil prices are going to be. They certainly didn't know oil was going to drop to $10 back in 2020, and they had no idea it was going to rally to $120 earlier this year. It's just a very, very difficult kind of business to run. And, and if it's a difficult kind of business to run, it's difficult to invest in as well, which is why these companies typically trade at such substantive discounts relative to, to fair value. And you said it right there. I think for the average investor who is managing their own portfolio, analyzing and coming up with intrinsic value assessments for other financial companies is a lot easier than it is for a commodity company. There are so many other things and aspects that need to go into your analysis. And that's why I think it's so hard to do, but it doesn't mean that we can't invest in them. And so I guess I'm just wondering, hearing your view on this, what are some segments of the market or companies, if you would like to share any, that you are particularly bullish on or think would offer the greatest long-term investment opportunity? Well, the truth is that the opportunities are pretty strong across the board. You mentioned earlier that the prices had bounced back a bit for energy companies. But just to put things in perspective, our resources strategy, which I run, I believe the PE is like six for it. And by the way, it's not all deep value stuff we're doing. We're investing in clean energy and clean energy materials and companies that have pretty solid long-term, if not very solid and very exciting long-term growth prospects. 
when you look at these companies, they are trading at very, very cheap levels relative to their current ability to generate cash flow on behalf of their investors. Now, if commodity prices were to drop 50%, obviously they wouldn't be as cheap. But at their current kind of cash flow generation rate, these companies are extraordinarily cheap. So what looks attractive? Well, fossil fuel companies are, are kind of deep value right now. They're trading, once again, at very, very restrained levels relative to their ability to generate cash flow. Within the, on the clean energy side of things, which we invest in as well in, in our resources strategy, and maybe it's not a commodity producer per se, but it's in the, the commodity arena, it's in the energy sector. Clean energy companies are trading at reasonable valuations, attractive valuation levels, but have much better growth prospects. You're not going to find a lot of clean. You can find oil companies trading it, and I'm not exaggerating, companies like Petrobras, whatever, that are trading at two times earnings, three times earnings, four times earnings, or so on and so forth. You're not going to find that in clean energy, but you might find a company that's trading at 13 times earnings, 14 times earnings, 10 times earnings that has much better growth prospects. And so ultimately, it's impossible to know ex ante which one's going to work out to be a better investment, but they're both positioned to generate very strong returns with very different growth profiles. On the metal side of things, you see a similar bifurcation. You see iron ore companies, for example, trading at very, very cheap levels. But then you find copper, lithium, nickel, kind of the clean energy materials that I've referenced a couple of times already. Those companies are trading at reasonable valuation levels, are still attractive valuation levels, but once again, have much better growth prospects. These companies that produce clean energy materials are going to make a lot more money over the next 10, 20 years than they ever have before for two very simple reasons. One, we're going to need a lot more copper, a lot more lithium, a lot more nickel than we've ever needed before. It's not going to be by a little bit. It's going to be by a lot. So they're just going to be selling more metric tons of material. At the same time, it is highly unlikely. Well, I'll I'll put it a different way. It is guaranteed that there will be periods of shortage where supply can't keep up with rapidly growing demand for these clean energy materials. So while the companies might not be as superficially cheap, as a company like Vale, which is the world's biggest iron ore producer, they have much better growth prospects. They're still trading at reasonable valuation levels, but have much better growth prospects. And ag and water, we see opportunities, but not quite as exciting as what we see on the energy and metals side of things. That's really interesting to hear because I wanted to get into the clean energy side of things with you later, but I'll just ask this now since you touched on lithium and copper. I've been looking into that a lot recently and just lithium in particular with the applications in the semiconductor space. And so you mentioned that supply could be constrained. And I was wondering, where do you see, I guess, those metals going? Because on one hand, if the supply can meet demand, then the price might not go up as much as expected. But do you, I guess, is your view then that you think there will be real shortages in some of these key metals that are needed for clean energy and all these other applications? Unless something happens that isn't happening now, there will be shortages. That is. And when I say, you know, the world is an unpredictable place. Could China invade Taiwan and could we end up in World War III and our nuclear war or whatever might happen, right? There there are scenarios that you could come up with in which commodity prices fall, where we don't end up, who cares about, if you're in the midst of a nuclear war, stop worrying about climate change, right? It's just not a great use of your time, right? Hunker down in, in your bunker or whatever. You can come up with scenarios, but if your base case view of the world is that the world is going to operate in any semblance of what we've gotten used to over the last 60, 70 years. 
and we're going to need to address climate change because it's an existential threat for life as we know it or, or as we've become accustomed to it, then there are going to be shortages. They're just, we know what projects are there. One of the nice things about the commodity arena is that once again, because of the long lead times for commodity producing projects, you have a pretty good sense for what supply is going to be for the next 10 years. And you have a pretty good sense for what demand is going to be in a base case kind of view of the world. And if you think that China is going to continue growing a bit, that the world is going to GDP, global GDP is going to continue growing a bit, that India and Indonesia, some of these other emerging countries are going to start or continue, I shouldn't say start, but they're going to continue to develop their economies and that we're going to have to address climate change and that the population is going to continue growing on the planet. If you believe these pretty, I don't know, easy to believe things are going to happen, there is not enough supply uh, currently in the pipeline for these various commodities to meet that growing demand. And then I guess the other thing on energy producers, a lot of them have initiated good or some climate change plans in their strategic planning and net zero targets. But I guess what makes a good or long term growth clean tech company for you? Because lots of these companies have introduced that, but does that not necessarily cut it for you? It depends on what strategy I'm thinking about. Big picture, the way I think about the group that I run is that we're, we're focused on doing research into the energy, metals, agriculture, and water sectors. And then we have different portfolio implementations based on that research. And so we might do research into a company or an industry that ends up being expressed across a broader uh, range of our strategies, or it might be specific to just resources or just climate change, if that makes sense. When I think about, I, I think you're referencing kind of Royal Dutch Shell and companies like that that are oil and gas companies that, but that have been putting a lot of money into to clean energy efforts. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of money. They've been putting some money, which is a lot in absolute terms, or it sounds like a lot to people like me and you, but relative to the amount of CapEx that they're putting into continued oil and gas operations, it still falls far short. So are those oil and gas companies or are those clean energy companies, using Shell as an example? Shell's an oil and gas company, right? They might be doing a bunch of clean energy stuff, but it isn't what is going to drive the profitability of their business for the foreseeable future. It's good that they're doing that, I guess. We do worry about whether that's their management's area of expertise. It's reasonable to question that entire kind of divestment approach or belief or that every single company needs to transition to net zero as an economy. We need to get to net zero as an economy. We need to address climate change. Does every single company need to do it or do you need to do it in aggregate? And do you really want your oil and gas company, which is that's their area of expertise, spending all of their time thinking about or not all of their time, but being distracted by doing solar and wind and and, uh, electric vehicle charging and things which aren't their core competency? And by the way, uh, in many cases are lower expected return projects for them. It's not implausible to think that these companies are actually destroying a little bit of value with their clean energy efforts. And it's also not implausible to think that it's not really impacting the world in any substantive way, because if they don't do these projects, someone else will do the projects. And maybe that is their core competency and what they're good at and and what they know and where their expertise is. I guess I think it's safe to say we're skeptical of fossil fuel companies transitioning uh, to become clean energy companies. 
You also have the obvious problem that if you're Shell, for example, they put a bit of money now uh, for a number of years into their clean energy efforts. So now what you have is a low multiple business with a high multiple business trapped inside it. So if you wanted to maximize the value of Shell, what should you do? Obviously, you should spin off their clean energy unit because it is higher growth and more popular and more politically palatable and all those other things. It will trade at a higher multiple than their fossil fuel business, and you will get a, a, a multiple expansion on that part of the business. That is what would maximize Shell shareholder value. But what would the investment community do then? They would start harassing Shell and say, hey, Shell, you have to add some clean energy stuff to your business again because we want you to be net zero aligned. Like Some of the core premises of a lot of these things don't make sense. I would argue, without hopefully offending too many people, that divestment from fossil fuels doesn't make sense. You, you, the worst thing, you, you think that climate change is bad. You know what's worse than climate change? It would be shutting off the taps on fossil fuels right now. You want to see chaos and bloodshed? Turn the taps off on fossil fuels. There will be blood in the streets within minutes or days, right? Like it would be mass chaos. We need fossil fuels right now. Uh, globally, there's no solution. I, I wish cold fusion, which and, and all these other things that get talked about, were ready for prime time and we're here right now. But for the foreseeable future, for the next few decades, we're going to need fossil fuels. So why are you demonizing an industry which is producing exactly what the world needs in order to sur- survive? And if you were going to punish anyone, shouldn't you be divesting from the massive consumers of fossil fuels? Why are you demonizing the producers? People aren't out there producing oil and gas and coal for no reason. They're producing it because it's being demanded by other people. So why not divest from the companies that are demanding the fossil fuels as opposed to the companies that are producing it? To me, the divestment effort lacks intellectual merit, but it does, I guess, have some background in, in kind of One of the problems is that we end up subsidizing and supporting these industries. And so we, if you're supporting the fossil fuel industry at the expense of, of moving to clean energy, then certainly that's something that, that we wouldn't want to happen. So I'm not totally against divestment. I just don't think it's a a logical thing. It's more of a political movement. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone. It's Patrick, your host of millennial investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, 
charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. You said so many great things there, and it just makes me think about all these energy companies, whether they're an infrastructure company trying to get more hydrogen pipelines or they're a producer with now carbon capture systems or whatever they're doing to become more clean and how it could actually be detracting shareholder value. Because like you mentioned, it's not their expertise. And so when as soon as they're starting to move out into these different avenues, as share, which is demanded by them, by the public, by governments, by shareholders, it's likely not in their benefit. So I think that is so interesting. And you made such a good point with when you turn off the tabs, you realize how much it's needed. We see that with the energy crisis going on in Europe. And so I actually did want to ask you about that because I think there's been some comparisons perhaps to this energy crisis compared to 1970s. And so I was wondering if you could touch on how you think these two periods are maybe different. Is today maybe worse even? I'm not sure that today is worse. You know, it is the impacts of uh, the European energy crisis, unfortunately, for our European friends are largely within Europe, right? Like we are eating higher oil prices in the United States. Everyone globally is. But it's Europe that's really borne the brunt of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions fall out from there and shutting down the pipelines and turning them back on and shutting them down again and, and all that kind of chaos. So it's impacted us in the United States and it's impacted other parts of the world, but it is really hitting uh, the European community much harder than it's hitting other parts of the world. But it is a great proof point. I mean, I don't think I've said anything yet on this podcast that isn't something that I believed prior to 2022, but it's great kind of intellectually. I don't feel good about uh, anything that's happening in terms of Russia invading Ukraine or whatever, but it's great to get that kind of, I guess what I, what offends me a little bit is the pie in the sky stuff where you come up with solutions for the world that sound good, but they don't get us anywhere. Because if it's not realistic, if it's not cheap, quite frankly, because in the United States, we can afford more expensive things. But there are other areas of the world and, and of course, parts of our own country where people can't afford expensive solutions. So we need cheap solutions, viable solutions, pragmatic, realistic solutions, not we should go to 100% clean energy 
by 2035 and and get rid of oil and gas and coal completely. Like the, these are just not things that are going to happen. I think Elizabeth Warren was talking about that a couple of years ago or a few years ago. She was talking about banning fossil fuel extraction completely, or I don't know, I can't remember the details. Uh, it was a few years ago, but you know, we need real solutions that are going to help people in the short term, the medium term, but also have an eye towards the long term, where of course climate's becoming a bigger and bigger problem for the world. And so I guess as governments are making this push towards net zero, you kind of already touched on this, but how the demand for other resources will increase. And so just touching on that again, can you talk a bit about which resources will benefit the most from the energy transition? Probably the most guaranteed is copper. So copper is really at the heart of most things in clean energy. When you look at wind and solar projects, they use four to 12 times as much copper as a comparably sized coal or natural gas power plant because they're distributed generation. So there's a lot more copper wiring and bringing everything together than when you have kind of a really centralized uh, coal or natural gas plant. When you look at electric vehicles, they use three to four times as much copper as an internal combustion engine vehicle. Every electric bus that we produce has something, uh, uses something like 800 pounds of copper, which if you realize how scarce of a resource copper is, is a truly mind-boggling number. We need to overhaul our electric grids to allow us to incorporate a higher percentage of renewables and because we are electrifying our vehicle fleet. So the, you know, historically used oil and diesel and things like that to run your cars, right? Uh, you see so your transportation was run by fossil fuels and then your electricity generation was some fossil fuels, but also some nuclear and hydro and wind and solar and whatnot. Well, now we're electrifying our vehicle fleet. When you do that, what do you have? You have a much greater burden on your electric grid. Trillions of dollars need to flow into our electric grids, both to allow us to have a higher percentage of renewables in our generation mix, but also to service all of the electric vehicles and buses and everything else that, that are going to be flooding the streets. A lot of copper and overhauling the grid, energy efficient, electrical components, appliances, etc. revolve around a lot of copper usage. Copper is obviously the, the electric material of choice or whatever you, you want to call it. Copper is just kind of the oil of a clean energy economy. And we've once again, we, we've never needed as much as we're going to need. And unfortunately, you don't find a lot of it, right? Like companies, when commodity prices, copper prices were high, at the end of the, the China-driven commodity super cycle, companies went out and they were looking for copper, right? They ramped up their exploration and discovery budgets by five, six, seven times or more relative to what they had been prior. They didn't find hardly anything. They found very, very little. Copper is kind of integral to everything in clean energy. So it's not just betting on one technology, one solution for climate change. It's kind of across the board. Clean energy solutions revolve around copper. And on the supply side, it's really constrained. Other things are kind of some of the kind of well-known things. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese go into lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Vanadium is potentially going to be a big long-term winner on the utility-scale energy storage side of things. So people talk a lot about energy storage, but the embedded kind of incumbent right now is just batching together a bunch of, well, I guess the, the real kind of solution when it comes to, to energy storage, at least at kind of utility scale, is pumped hydro, where you pump water up a mountain into a reservoir and let it flow back down and generate hydropower, which is great if you're next to a mountain with a reservoir, right? But it doesn't do you much good in many areas of the world. 
then when you're talking about kind of energy storage that could be used anywhere, now you're talking about people batch together huge amounts of lithium ion batteries. But the longer term solutions are likely to be potentially at least uh, vanadium redox flow storage systems. And vanadium, obviously, as the name implies, would be a major input into those storage systems, which have different characteristics than what, what you would get with lithium ion battery. It's all pretty complicated, and I don't want to go on and on and on about it. But there are a number of different materials. Platinum group metals, for example, would be used heavily in, in kind of uh, hybrid vehicles. There are a lot of different materials that are used in different applications on the clean energy side of things. But if you made me pick one, once again, I would go with copper just because copper is used across such a wide range of clean energy solutions. That's so interesting to hear you talk about that. And it's hard to ignore the, I guess, the opportunity in that space. And so for investors wondering, what do you think is the best way to invest in, say, the precious metals used to that are needed to meet this increasing energy, clean energy demand? If someone wants to invest in copper, or these other materials you just talked about, what would you say is the best opportunity or way to do so? Well, I wouldn't invest in the materials themselves or uh, the futures surrounding them. I would invest in the equities that are producing those, those commodities or companies that service those commodity producers. If you want to bet on copper, don't go out and buy. Not that many investors can do this other than institutional investors, but even for institutional investors, don't go out and buy a copper future. If you want to bet on copper, invest in a company that is making money developing copper assets and producing copper. The problem with betting on futures or directly investing in commodities, any commodity, it doesn't have to be copper, but any commodity, is that the only way you win is if the commodity price goes up. If the commodity price doesn't go up, you're flat or you're losing. If you're investing in a copper miner who at $3.50 copper is going to generate a real return of 8 or 9 or 10% a year, well, you're going to get 8, 9, or 10% a year out of that copper miner, uh, even if copper prices stay flat. Now, if copper prices go up, you're going to make a lot more than that. Investing in publicly traded companies that are producing these clean energy materials and investing in a basket of those companies and a basket of those underlying commodities via those companies would be my recommendation. That's really helpful to know. And I was actually just looking into a couple ETFs. I was looking into a silver one and then an oil one. It was USO. But then you also have to worry about whether the curve is in backwardation or contango because that can impact the returns. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Let's leave the futures out of it for a second. Oil prices in real terms are flattish since 1926. Five, which is when our data set goes back to. We can get oil prices before then, but our public equity data set goes back to 1925. Oil price has been flattish, up maybe 40 basis points per annum since 1925. Oil and gas companies are up over 8% per annum real over the same period of time. Look at metals. Metals prices flattish in real terms over the last 100 years, same as oil prices. Look at the mining companies. They're up closer to 9% annualized per year after the last 100 years. So once again, that's that. I didn't call it an equity risk premium, but you would not invest in a company if you didn't think you were going to get a return uh, from investing in that, that company. And so companies are priced, equities are priced at a level such that they will generate a return in expectation for you. Commodities are priced based on supply and demand at that moment in time. Totally different things, right? 
One is kind of a fallout. The other one is kind of an explicit intentionality from the investment community. We are intentionally pricing these companies at a level such that we think they'll generate a return for us. I don't know about you, but 8 to 9% edge for the equities relative to the commodities themselves for 100 years is a pretty big edge, right? Like that is, you compound out 9% a year uh, for 100 years and compound out zero a year for 100 years, and you're at wildly, wildly, wildly different endpoints. Forget about the commodities themselves. The futures are basically investing in the commodities themselves, but to your point, you have other problems as well, which is that in the last 15 years or so, the futures curves have generally been upward sloping, which means every time you go to roll your future, your expiring future, into a, a future that's further out on the curve, you are selling low and buying high. So if your oil, let's say oil prices are at $90 and your contract is about to expire, you sell oil at $90 and then you go out and you buy the contract a year into the future, let's say, and maybe that's $97. That isn't a good trade, right? And generally speaking, that has burned the investors in commodity futures year after year after year for quite a while now. The equities are much, much better than the commodities themselves. The commodities themselves, much, much better than the futures on the same commodities. I'm sure there's a counterpoint to that, but I can't imagine what it was. And if someone's trying to argue it, I would be very skeptical. Yeah, you explained that so well. Thank you for that. I think sometimes that seems like the easiest way maybe to get exposure to commodities without having to do the other due diligence. You're just kind of making a speculative bet or maybe it's not speculative. Maybe it's an informed bet, but you don't want to have to worry about all the other things that go into valuing producers or something. And so I guess just off the top of my head, that's maybe one reason. But I think that was just, yeah, that was super helpful. And for our listeners who want to learn more about GMO and yourself and the funds that you guys have, where can they go to find you? GMO.com is, is the website for our company. And, and there's more information about our strategies and certainly material that is similar in tone to, to a lot of what I've said today. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Lucas. Thank you for having me once again. This was a pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.